0: the man himself
1: there you are Good evening everybody
0: it looks very comfy in those seats <laughs> it is so isn't I, it if I do bore you I don't mind you if you fall asleep so I probably would do the same listen to me but I, I would
1: mind I'll wake you <laughs> up <laughs> um, so Jason I know you travel all over the place you actually rearranged some of your schedule to be here this evening I think you were going to be in Dubai but you Change your plan to be here so thank you very much. It's a pleasure Um, to be here. And you, uh, I suppose the best place to start is at the beginning so could you tell us about your roots, where it all began? Of course.
0: I was born in a a, a small little town called Worksop in um, uh, just south of Sheffield. Um, My parents split up when I was very young. Uh, I was like four um, and my mum took me and my sister to Skegness on holiday, and we never came back. Uh, and so we uh, we lived in a caravan, a small caravan site in Inglemells, uh, which is a tiny little. Its uh, its claim to fame is it has more caravans per square meter than anywhere in Northern Europe. Not a great <laughs> claim to fame. I know there's some other records I'm sure people want to hold than that. But so we lived there. Uh, uh, went to school like every other normal child and. Um, didn't really, you know, got um, ripped quite a bit for living on a caravan site. You know, the, the word gypsy was used quite a lot, but, you know, you sort of, as a tough young kid, you sort of sort of shrugged that off. And, uh, yeah, and it was, you know, I, I grew up, my mum met someone else, and then um, my life in hospitality started a few years later than that in the fact that they had a guest house on, in Skegles, which was mm. the big thing in the 70s. Everyone, you know, went to the Seaside Resort and stayed in bed and breakfast, so they had a very small, modest bed and breakfast uh, called the Sorrento. Um, uh, which I think it That's was kind of a brilliant name. <laughs> Sorrento. You could make it's like Crossroads, right? You could make <laughs> it could have been it could have been a reality show somewhere. You know? <laughs> and so, and um, um, it had like something like twelve bedrooms or something. It was tiny, and and, and people used to come and stay. And then in the winter, a lot of workmen would stay there and stuff working on on the land and so forth around Lincolnshire. And so. And my my sister's job where we went to school in the morning, we'd have to help wash the pans, the pots, after everyone's breakfast. uh, And then we would help tidy up, hoover, Mm -hmm. all the crumbs and stuff. And then we were allowed to go to school, we'd come home, we'd help mum again, um, prepare everything from like just helping to mix stuff, wash stuff. And and so it became part of our life, right? Hospitality was sort of that, you know, Even, even at weekends and stuff when we were allowed to stay up late. They used to play bingo, it was very exciting, you know, they used to play bingo and, and then we were allowed a, a bag of crisps and, and, and a Coca-Cola on a Friday night. And So it was always in my blood, I suppose, from quite an early age. And uh,
1: do you have a holiday in caravans now?
0: No, we don't. <laughs> no. no, I've had my fill of caravans. There's nothing wrong with caravans, but we were, uh, yeah. No, not yet. And does your mom still have the, the guest house? No, 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 they sold. They, so, so they upgraded to a bigger one. They did very well for themselves. And then they upgraded to a bigger one on the seafront called uh-huh. the Maryland. And that had about 40 bedrooms. Uh, so much larger. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot more staff to manage. Um, and, you know, it's quite fascinating because everyone's panicking at the moment because the interest rates have gone to like 0.5%. My God, Armageddon's happened. <laughs> you know, and, and if you look at, you know, my, my stepfather tells me the story of... You know, I was only young, I was like 9 or 10 by that stage. When they borrowed the money to do that, interest rates were at 25%. Wow. Could you imagine if we lived in that world today? Uh, and you just think, my God, how on earth did you borrow money?
1: So they were bold and they were confident, they took yeah. risks.
0: Yeah, and, and, they, and they did it. You know, they, 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 they bought it, they paid it off quite quickly. It was very successful. Mm. They got out at the right time before the seaside tourist trade of places like Skegness, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, nosedived and then um, you know but by then I was a teenager and you know it didn't really matter to me I was just interested in going out and enjoying myself.
1: And you speak a lot about the 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 fact that that, those early years in hospitality how that instilled discipline and inspired you to do what you do to some extent but you you haven't spoken about before I don't think the the fact that they took those risks and does that do you think that has helped you take those next steps and some of the bold decisions you've made and the big steps you've taken in in your career? I think
0: Attitude to risk is, is, is a is a difficult one, right? Because because in if you look at my attitude to risk inside restaurants, um, taking away what my what my parents instilled in me, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, of course that they took risks, uh, but they were calculated risks, right? Because mm-hmm. they did it small, they were successful at it, and then they moved on to something much bigger. But uh, and I suppose you know when me and my wife took my our, our risk in Pollen Street, it was a calculator. I'd already been cooking for twenty four years by that stage, mm-hmm. um, so I was. Pretty good at it, you know. I got to, I could knock could knock a few pots and pans around as they say. So it was, you know, and I, I'd already feel maze by Gordon Ramsay for for, for Gordon, uh, one of Michelin Star there, had a bit of a name in London, so I knew I could attract people to at least try it, you know, mm-hmm. and then if mm-hmm. it was good enough and, and we got the concept right, then people would come back. So it's a calculator risk. But nevertheless, it is a risk. I mean, we'd already, you know, we had to remortgage our house, our children were already going to a very good school. We had a fantastic job with Gordon, you know, I was earning a lot of money. I had a fantastic lifestyle. I could buy nice clothes. I was going on nice Mm -hmm. holidays. But it was never, it was never about that. You know, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about, it wasn't about the clothes. It wasn't about the holidays. It wasn't about the private school. It was, it was about what, you know, it was convincing my wife that this I had to do it. Do you mean it was, it was never going to go away? It was like, it's like living with the flu your whole life. It's (laughs) you know, unless you take the medicine, it was never going to go away. I had to take that risk. You know, it's a Pollen Street. You know and I, and I say it today i mean michael west who's been my long-term general manager if you just indulge me for a couple of seconds was i'll never forget the time and if you don't mind me saying exactly how it happened i'll tell you exactly how it happened so we we when you open a reservation line you open it a month before the restaurant opens uh and so all the reservation lines are fitted they're still banging about in the restaurant and we've got this little office downstairs at pollen street which was our head office back then and so mike who was in charge of the reservation said right at 9 a.m., the reservations go live. So Twitter just launched then. So we're trying to put it on Twitter like a couple of idiots, you know? <laughs> and we're trying to like man our way through this new social media thing. And, and, and we're getting it all out there. And, and, and Richard Vines had retweeted it and all this type of stuff. So it was all going out there. And then at 10 to 9, I said to Michael, Why was it the fucking phone don't ring? And he said, <laughs> He said, What are you talking about? I said, Why was the fucking phone doesn't ring? And he said, Of course it's going to ring. What are you? Said, why, why are you saying that? And I said, well, Michael, it was this moment of realisation of everything we had on the line, which I never even thought about before, you know, I just, yeah. just went ahead and did it. And I said, if that phone doesn't ring, we are fucked. <laughs> and, and, and excuse me for that language, but that's, that's how the conversation was. And then we talked about and I said, Michael, I don't have any spare money. Yeah. If we don't fill this <laughs> restaurant, we can't pay the staff. Mm. And the phone rang, thank goodness, and I think we took something like... Well, it
1: was probably me chasing a bill, wasn't it? Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: We're not paid for the artwork. Yeah. We, 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 we took 17,000 reservations in like three days, and then we had to shut it off because we couldn't take any more bookings. So yeah. it was like, it was very scary few moments. Yeah. And, but, but when I mean, it was it, done, it was like, oh my gosh, yeah. now we've got to fulfill them, we've got to impress them, and we've got to get them to come back.
1: Yeah. Know? And you make it all look so effortless and the way that the quality of Pollen Street I mean I remember when just being on site with you and it was still just a building site and just the detail the attention to detail for everything from you know the big the big things that you know where the, the door would be located where the bar would go where the cloakroom would go but down to the very small things you know the kind of the trim on the edge of a table the kind of the, the, the spoon the knife the, the every little little detail and the same was with the artwork when we were framing everything it was just those the small things mattered to you and of course that's what makes your food and you and the restaurant so successful because it is that overarching
0: attention to detail. Um, yeah. yeah I suppose it's like it's like anything you know you, you, you to be successful at something you know we're, we're, I don't know I, I want to be like super positive so it's, it's important we, we live in a world where everything's instantaneous today everyone wants everything now you know people want to be like successful overnight people want to be like the next star of a reality tv show everyone wants to be like this that it's got to be instant and the worry i have for that is to be really good at anything yeah. takes time you know mm. and time is like people don't respect time today mean? Mm. Mm. and so it took me 25 years to learn my craft people mm. say oh my god you've done so well for yourself the last seven years like you've like Boomed and it's like yeah but it's like it's not an overnight success story there was yeah. there was you know times when I first lived in London when I was 17. I lived on people's floors because I couldn't afford a, I couldn't afford a room during yeah. and I was working six, seven days a week on my days off because I couldn't afford to eat I was working in other people's restaurants for free. I know it sounds dramatic, but this is the truth you know and I, I worked for Tim Hughes who was a, he had a restaurant in Soho called a camp and I used to work on my days off just so I could eat the staff food do you know I mean Wow. And wow. that it takes years to learn your craft. Yes. And I was yes. happy. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't. I wasn't. I've never been a party guy. And I was happy just to go to work and learn more. Yes. Get some food and then go home. And then go to my day job and in, in the rest of the week. And it was an obsession, do you mean? Yes. To learn to be great. I never. I never wanted to be what's termed. I mean, it never existed then. But to be a celebrity chef. I mean, like, what is a celebrity chef, right? It's ridiculous. I think this mean, is but, it. No, it's <laughs> not. That, is it? it's ridiculous. Right? It's just, the terminology should not exist because it's like. You're either a chef or a celebrity, right? Because if you're on TV all the time, then you're a celebrity, do you know? Yeah. yeah. But if you're a chef, which I consider myself to be a real chef, yes. you are, you know, I literally, I made a joke to Simon and I was a little bit late for the photo shoot and I literally had to get changed in the car park because I, I left my suit in my car and had to quickly run over in my chef's jacket and get changed in the car park. Not very glamorous, is it? But,
1: yeah. But you got here. I got so here. So you moved to London when you were 17 and you came... I believe, as 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 legend has it, you arrived with a carrier bag and yeah, you know, Co-op,
0: Co-op carrier bag.
1: That's detail. That's yep. good.
0: I remember it very clearly. My mum only shopped at Co-op because it was good value for money. Uh-huh. It's a very northern thing, and we um and yeah, just, but it was normal. We carried everything. We just like. And everything. Well, my parents had actually gone on holiday, and they said to me I wasn't allowed to. My stepfather, my mum, said I wasn't allowed to move to London because I was too young, and I had to wait until I was working at a, a pretty bad hotel in Skegness at the time called the County Hotel, where our our dessert trolley was everything from Sarah Lee. Anyone remember <laughs> Sarah Lee? Yeah. So we, uh, my job was to unpack all the frozen desserts and put them on a on a trolley chop a load of fruit up, put some uh, concentrated orange juice on top and a little splash of Kirsch. <laughs> who remembers Kirsch? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you got at the County Hotel in Skegness. So it was pretty dire and I remember uh, Mr. Mr Drummond who was the hotel general manager from time to time would come in and give me a telling off because I'd not got the frozen desserts out fast enough so <laughs> people would complain that the Black Forest Gato was still frozen.
1: Not and now glamorous. you at Pollen Street you always get out early don't you? Always get it out early. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Don't you worry, it's on a timer.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay, and so from there, so London, and then take us through some of those people that you really worked with that really did shape your career, some of those big chefs, restaurants that, you know, kind of the the landmark people that you worked with.
0: Well, I I, I worked at a restaurant called Boyd's Glass House, it was my first serious restaurant on Kensington Church Street. Very happy memories there, I uh, was one of only four or five chefs in the kitchen. Um, Boyd was uh, quite forward-thinking. Um, he's retired now; he doesn't he doesn't cook anymore. But he uh, um, a great chef's completely self-taught. And I was doing stuff in that kitchen. I didn't realize I was wasn't supposed to do at such a young age. But because it was such a small team, we all had to muck in, you know. And he was really good friends with Pierre Koffer. And So once I'd done my time there, he got me a, an interview with uh, Pierre. And then I went to work with Pierre at La Tante Claire, which is now mm-hmm. a restaurant Gordon Ramsay. Um, and then it, then that's when the doors started to open, right? Because you were in a, like one of London's top restaurants, if not Europe's top restaurants at the time, he had two Michelin stars. He was hunting for his third, um, and then you know started to learn things uh, which were like incredible to learn. And then from there, I went to work for Nicola Dennis at uh, uh, Great Portland Street, and um, and then you know I was reading non-stop about a guy called Marco Pierre White, which is now Harveys, what was now Shea, what's now Shea Bruce, which we actually live not far from, uh, and. You know, it was it was this guy, right? I mean, I never forget getting his book. I mean, has anybody got White Heat, the original one? It's just, you know, it was just the most incri- You know, we, in Britain we had all like the Rue Brothers, Raymond Blancs. It was all like these French chefs. You know, for like, no offence against the French, but it was like it was. But that's what we deemed proper food, right? If you mm. went out for a nice dinner, it was like you went to a French restaurant. And then Marco, this English guy from Macau's estate in Leeds, had a fag hanging out of his mouth. Uh, was dating supermodels, was like telling everybody to F off and kicking people out of his restaurant and having battles with AA Girl. And all of a sudden, this guy's like, cool. Do you mean? Yeah. It's like, and it was like the football hooligan era. Do you mean? And, you know, we were all sort of like part of that world. Do you mean as, as, as not street kids, but do you mean as, as down to earth kids? And all of a sudden, this guy represented us in a way. Do you mean this guy was like this crazy guy who just mm. didn't give a damn about anything, but he was the, the most successful chef in Britain at the time. Uh, and I thought I need to work for this guy, you know. So, mm. so, uh, and there was no, you know, you didn't, um, you didn't, you couldn't like do it over email or anything like that. You literally had to turn up, you know. So, so, I got the bus down to Wandsworth, uh, knocked on the door, and said, look, you know, I, I can I speak to Marco? And he was like, uh, he's in the front. But what do you want? And he was like, I'd like, I'd apply for a job. And he said, where? The, Donovan Cook was the chef at the time. And he said, where do you work? I said, I work at Nicola Dennis. He says, when can you start? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> He said, well, I'll, I'll ask Marco because we're short of a couple of people. What I didn't realise, I thought I was lucky at the time. What I didn't realise is that you're, they were always short of people because Marco's <laughs> very difficult to work with. And, and um, yeah, and then, you know, I uh, became part of Marco's squad and I had very happy times there. And then we moved on to... From there, we moved on to restaurant Marco Pierre White, where we went on as yeah. a brigade to win three Michelin stars. And it was just a crazy time because, you know, Sir Michael Kane was his business partner. He would just come in and he was like, Is Marco around? And you'd be like, <laughs> Fuck, it's Michael Kane. Like, What's going on? And it was just like the most incredible time, you know. It was like, it was, I think, what London's all about, you know. Mm. And then from there, you, and you also worked at some other amazing
1: restaurants away from London in Europe as well.
0: I did, yeah. So after that, I, uh, I asked Marco to get me a job in France um, uh, with connections and stuff. So I went to work at a restaurant called La Bourge de Lille in Alsace, didn't speak a word of French, apart from like kitchen French, you know, which is like we oui or, you know, whatever, right? So you can't say yes, right? I think that's just and, French. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> so I knew all the ingredients and stuff like that. So I, so I could get by and I uh, could ask my way around. And I got a job as a commie chef, so all the way back down to the bottom again uh, at this very famous restaurant. I think it's the second oldest free michelin Michelin-star restaurant in the world. Right. Uh, a tiny little town uh, called Illhausen in, mm. uh, on the German border, uh, and nobody even spoke like hello in English. to you know? So I got there and I stayed at this uh, at the the place where all the staff stayed, uh, and it was very that was a that was a lonely time during because uh, it was like it was a bit of a time in my life where I was like I nearly gave up cooking. Because I was like quite lonely, quite insular. Mm-hmm. They didn't really want to speak to me. Do you mean, on, on your you, you do your all your all your shifts, and then someone would have to cook for the family at the weekend. It was always me. Funny that. <laughs> and uh, and you know, and I I but I decided to embrace it, crack yep. on. You know, get my uh, get my northern spirit up, and and, and just work hard and, and learn as much as possible. I did I did my time, and then. He asked me to go and work for his friend in Paris uh, called Alain de Tournier. He's got a v- mm-hmm. very famous restaurant called Carla Fillon, two-star Michelin. And I didn't turn up. the any time I've never turned up for a job. I just, I just wanted to come home. So there was something mm-hmm. about me wanting to come home. Um, so I, and I, I, I'm, I'm a London boy. You know, I know I'm a Northern boy, but I, I, I consider London my home. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm very proud to be part of the London uh, fabric. And, and you know, London was calling. So I came back to London and met a guy called Oliver Payton, which we all know mm-hmm. today had. Atlantic Bar and Grill, which is one of the hottest uh, nightlife venues in London. Then he had a very sophisticated restaurant called Coast um, in the early nineties. So I, mm. I became sous chef there, and that was my first management job. You know, yeah, uh, and that was really like kind of cool. You know,
1: yeah. And then of course,
0: there's you went to Spain as well. I did, yeah. Shortly after that. But talking about Coast for a second, it was the only yeah. time in my life that I didn't, I didn't not work in a Michelin star restaurant but I chose that restaurant specifically because it was a large restaurant and I wanted to learn how to manage people. And So I knew at a young age that I didn't have, it's okay learning to cook, but if I wanted to, if I was serious about owning my own restaurant, I need to learn how to manage people. Mm. And so that's why I applied. I got the job with Stephen Terry. Um, uh, And again, it was, you know, Oliver Payton was the boy around town. You know, we had the the Gallagher brothers were in, you know, falling down the stairs and Madonna and, you know, all those people at their peak at the time. And it was uh, a pretty crazy restaurant, you know? and how long were you there? Oh, gosh, probably with Oliver, probably about three, four years, maybe. Right. Uh, and then I went up to Manchester. But part of that journey was he, was, he opened up a restaurant called in Manchester. Anybody remember that mm. one? No? Anybody you remember that, sir? Uh, and it was on uh, Canal Street, so uh, right in the heart of the gay village, you know? And he opened this amazing structure. It was, like, quite incredible. It had his own brewery, very ambitious for, like, the early 90s of Manchester, you know? Ploughed so much money into it. Uh, and gang culture, you know much about the gang culture in Manchester. Um, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty full on. You're Is in, it really? Oh yeah, it's oh. pretty full on. And uh, I remember <laughs> I remember Oliver taking up his London bouncers, and I'd never seen him like this before. And, and uh, we, were, we were in the middle of service and, and the Manchester bouncers didn't take very kindly to the London boun- bouncers were in the door of a, of a Manchester oh. venue. Uh, and it was uh, um, yeah, a bit of an eye-opener actually to see how that whole London thing being accepted in Manchester, huge success story, but there was always that like you know, mm, what, lo- what are the Londoners doing here? This right. is Manchester. <laughs> wow. So I ran that for him for a year and a half. Okay. Uh, very successful. It did very well. I think Jonathan Meads, who was the critic for the Times at the time, uh-huh. said, um, you know, it was like a revelation. It was this. It was that. Da da da. And but I still wasn't. I still wasn't ready really to run a restaurant. Uh-huh. You know, my management skills were not good enough. Yeah. I was making a lot of mistakes. I was an angry young man because I wasn't getting my way with the food. Uh, I was like being really hard on the team. I was working myself into an early grave. I wasn't, you know, do you know what I mean? I was trying to do everything myself rather than use the team around me to to do it like I would today, you know? Uh, and so after a year and a half of running that, I quit. Um, spoke to Pierre Kaufman, w- was listening to everyone talk about this new young chef in Spain uh, called Ferran Adria, uh, at a restaurant called El Buy. Um, and I just thought, you know, I, I need to go back to being trained again. So I, I wrote five letters, which I'll never forget how much it cost. It cost me about 40, 50 pounds of time to get them translated into Catalan. I sent them over. I didn't get a reply once. Um, I was dating uh, this girl at the time. So I just thought, you know what? I'm not really into the fellatio anyway. So I dumped her. I packed <laughs> my... Uh, it's the truth. I packed my rucksack. Got a flight to Barcelona, got a bus, yeah. didn't plan it very well. So it was a sleepy little town. If everyone's been to Rosas, it's a tiny little sleepy town in the, the uh, just near the French border. And it was early, like very, very early spring. So it, everywhere was shut. So I slept on the beach. Um, next morning, uh, went to a cafe, got brushed up, uh, proceeded to climb the hill. And it's about, if everyone's been to Elbe, has anybody been? It's about four miles, maybe five miles up like a windy road to get to this mountain restaurant. So I got there uh, and I said to Ferran, you know, look, I, I, I'm desperate to work here. I, I'm the guy who wrote you loads of letters and you never applied back. And um, he remembered. And he just <laughs> said, I don't have vacancies. You don't speak uh, Spanish. You don't certainly don't speak Catalan. And we just can't we can't communicate in the middle of service. And I was like heartbroken. And I literally said, look, Please just, let, I'll, I'll wash the pans. I just don't want to go back to London. You know, it's like, I'll, I just want to stay here for the summer. I'll do anything. I'll do the gardening, whatever. If I can just yeah. watch service, I'll do whatever it takes. So, Eduardo, the chef at the time, um, said, Look, you know, just give the, guy, let's give the guy a chance. You know, he can help in the pot wash, uh, he can help do the prep. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, they didn't realize how much experience I'd had previously. You know? mm-hmm. If you calculate back, I'd already worked in like five, three, four freestyle restaurants at that point, five. And, and so, when they put me in the back prepping the scallops i was like twice as quick as the junior kids you know right. yeah. uh, so i was like smashing out the scallops the langoustines prepping his foie doing the whole thing i was so fast Yeah. they were like right okay you can stay because <laughs> because the, <laughs> the communication for that is very basic right, right. Uh, and then i was just picking up a little bit here and there and then eventually you know i spent a couple of years with him and and um i uh, it was he's best friends with me today still and and we do events together still today and it's yeah. one of the big highlights of my career and I feel very privileged to to have met him and known him and understand him as as, yeah. as a chef.
1: Absolutely, That's amazing.
0: And then from there, you came back to London. Came back to was London. Was that when you met joined? Met a, a young man called Gordon Ramsay, if anyone's <laughs> known him. Um, so I um, spent 11. So that's my longest part, of my But I knew Gordon back from Harvey's days. Yeah. So we our paths crossed very briefly, um, and you know I knew Gordon was it. It's gonna be a sensation. It was just, it was written in the stars. You know, I mean, yeah. if anybody was lucky enough to eat Aubergine, did anybody eat Aubergine when it was around? I mean, it was just insane. Mm. What a restaurant mm. that was. Mm. I mean, when Gordon was, you know, when Gordon was in the kitchen dancing with the pans, there was nobody better than Gordon in in, in the the late nineties, early two thousands in London cooking. Simple as that. In Britain, in, if not the world, you know, he mm. was he was the king. You know, yeah. you know and, and he, I still remember today. I mean, the food at Aubergine was just just incredible. Do you know, mm. it was just mind blowing. And, and I just wanted to work for that guy, you know, and I want to, you know, I knew he was on his way up, and and, and so, you know, he he he, asked, he he actually asked to speak to me, and we went for a coffee, which is now Colbert, was mm-hmm. the old Oriel site. We had coffee together. He was already he was already driving a Ferrari. I was very impressed. I was very impressionable, you know? <laughs> uh, And he gave me a list in his Ferrari, and he was telling me about all his stories about what he's up to and his expansion plans and stuff. And he said, "Look, Jason, come aboard. We, we can do great things together." And, and he was true to his word, you know. And, yeah. A couple of years later, after working at Roswell Road, I was out in Dubai running his hotel for him, and uh, eventually I opened up, I think seven or eight mazes around the world for him, from South Africa yeah. to New York to Prague to uh, Australia. Uh, so that's why I learnt this whole travel thing and mm-hmm. how to communicate with people on a global scale. So I would never be able to do what I do today without Gordon Ramsay. Mm-hmm. It, that's fact, you know.
1: And you wouldn't have met Ira either, because no, of course you met right. your wife in Dubai.
0: Mm-mm. I did, yeah. So when he sent me to. To Dubai to 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 open up the restaurant, um, it's a, it, it, I think the recruitment's different now because we have a restaurant there now, so it's much more organic now. But in the old days of Dubai uh, in two thousand one, when we moved there, was they they would do recruits. So like you'd have like, uh, you know, the management would come in predominantly white. Then you would have the lower levels would be Filipinos. Indians, Sri Lankans, and they would be shipped in because they would be paid a lot less, right? And that's just how it is, right? So I'm sorry if it, it sounds rough, but that's how it was. And then when I arrived from the Philippines, uh, you know, I was busy in the kitchens and stuff, and I saw this very striking lady come through the kitchen. I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> uh, and one of my Filipino chefs who were working for me called Adele uh, was our matchmaker. So I said to Adele, Adele, look, if you want a good rota working for me, <laughs> you need to get me a date with that lady <laughs> and she turned me down four or five times bought a chaperone with her I don't think she trusted me on the first date uh, and then uh, yeah and then we fell in love and now we then we got married and in Dubai and so we're very fond of Dubai for the memories it's given us and yep. now we have two wonderful children and here we are
1: here hmm? yeah, round of applause for era. Look at Eero <laughs> <in there. laughs> knocking me into shape um, so then Gordon Ramsay, Maze was an en- enormous success, of course, and became, mm. uh, uh, you know, got its own identity beyond Gordon in many ways. Yeah. Um, and that was your last post with him, wasn't it, before you left yeah. Maze? And
0: then, yeah. you I mean, it, it was one of those restaurants where you know the space came available at the at the Marriott and Grosvenor Square, and, and, and Gordon was adamant. I mean, I never forget it. I mean, it was, believe it or not, it was supposed to be Vietnamese French, and I remember sitting in the office, at the head office down, and and, and Gordon saying, you know. Chris, his farm law, uh, we've got this plan now, we we, we we feel that, you know, Vietnamese, French, and, and you know, I agree with him, it could have been a cool thing at the time, but I said, Gordon, I don't know anything about Vietnam, I've never been, and he's like, he said, but yeah, you can read some books, I said, no, you reading books and cooking Vietnamese food are two completely different things, I said, look, you know, I can do like the French stuff, no problem, it's what I'm trained to do. You know, of course, I know Asian flavors, so I can sneak a few Asian flavors in there and and, and have this new sort of sort of thing without it being fusion food. Uh, and I said, but I certainly can't cook Vietnamese food, and I'm certainly not going to start training to cook Vietnamese food now. So, we, you know, together we came up with the maze, the, the concept maze, and no one had really done Hoke Cuisine Tapas before, right? Uh, that's what it was sort of labeled at. And it wasn't until I left after, like, I was there for, like, seven years, six years or something and when I left I didn't realize how iconic it become in people's mm-hmm. lives you know I still get people today stopping me in the street saying oh my god you know uh even though it grates me because they should be saying about pollen street <laughs> <laughs> they oh god you know we loved it when we you know I had my first date at May's or I had this at May's or I had that at May's. It's amazing right yeah. and, and, and we create so many beautiful memories for people and that's what restaurants should be you know mm-hmm. and that's kind of what you do now we were talking earlier about
1: the the importance of hospitality and your attitude towards it and mm-hmm. how you will treat everyone who comes into your restaurant in exactly the same way and you know you were i think you told me a story the other day when you were just you'd cooked all you've been in, in service you cooked the whole time upon street social stepped outside someone needed to get a cab and you got the cab for them yeah absolutely
0: that. i mean <laughs> The thing is, life, life's about attitude anyway, right? We just talked about Brexit before, you know, and, and the attitude towards Brexit. You can go around stamping your feet, saying it's all doom and gloom. And it's this. this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Or you look at it and say, right, OK, right, we are where we are. Let's look at the positives out of this. What can we make out of it? How can we drive ourselves forward through it? And, and when we get to the other side, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to take advantage of what it gives us. Right. Mm. Uh, and it's the same i think in from the minute you wake up to when you go to sleep i think if you you should take advantage of every single minute of every day and and never walk around with your cup half i forgot that right half empty should be half full is that right i got that the right way around i think so i yeah. hope so <laughs> it, my school wasn't very good in Skegness. <laughs> and, and and so like it, it, and, and so going to that story yes i i was busy in the kitchen i went out to the front desk just to check the last bookings and a lady, there was not a receptionist there because they were they were in the restaurant showing people to their tables, and they it just started to drizzle and they wanted a cab, so I says yeah no problem I'll, I'll get you one now because they were Americans they didn't know where to go to get back to their hotel so I, I shot down to Regent Street, flagged him in, got him in, opened the 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 cab, put them in, and then she wound down a window and said oh you know right are you Jason Averton? and I said yes ma'am and she said did you just cook our dinner And I said yes ma'am and she says she goes. How do you? Why, why have you come to get a, a taxi? And I said because you wanted a taxi. <laughs> and she said, but don't you have people to do that for you? And I said yes, but I want to do it for you because you were there, and it's part of the experience. It's what we do, and I want you to have a good time. And it's for me, it's normal. And she, goes, and she just went well, me and she said, but that's why you're successful. And she drove off, and I thought that was very nice. But but we would do that for 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 anybody. I mean, like our little street there on Pollen Street, you know. I do hope you notice it when you do come to Boland Street that it's. We always keep it very clean. Yeah. Uh, we we pay to have it jet washed. We pay to have the street lights painted. We we clean all the cigarette butts up. We clean everyone's rubbish up. We put it into our rubbish bins and we pay for it to be taken away because I want people to come to our little street and feel that people take care of people and mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. we we love to make people happy. You know because mm-hmm. I think it it's important that. You know, we don't always get it right, you know, but when people are in our establishments that they feel loved, you know, and I think that's yeah. one of the greatest things you can do <laughs> for anybody, right?
1: And that street has transformed since you took over Pollen because you took over just shortly afterwards, the space opposite became available and you, you moved in there as well and opened Little Social. Yeah. So you now have two restaurants on the same yeah. same street. Yeah. Um, but Pollen Street itself is, is an enormous success. You got a Michelin star within the first six months, I think, wasn't Four. it? Or? Form? Sorry, I stand corrected. Not doing any research. <laughs> um, and so from there, you kind of you built something from you know that first restaurant. You built something quite enormous. But just talk about Pollen Street because it really was the, the 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 kind of yes, you put everything online, but you took a lot of risks with it in terms of the way you'd kind of present yourself and present the food and build in your team. So talk a little bit about Pollen Street, please.
0: Sure. I mean, I mean first of all, the name's. Crazy, right? Pollen Street Social. I mean, I mean, when when we invented it, myself and my wife, we were talking about it on a on a. a, And I was like, well, you know, no one knows where Pollen Street. Everyone knows it now, right? So we're 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 lucky that we've done that for the little street. But but no one knew Pollen Street had had a a couple of uh, brothels there um, opposite Pollen Street. It had a really dodgy pub called the Blue Post, which was nicknamed. The some dog and vomit or something all the local guys around it used to <laughs> label it and then it had our site what used to be uh pitch and piano which had two written warnings against it which I still have to have now on my license for people getting glassed so it wasn't the wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was in Mayfair right make it up so it's uh, um it's not the uh, it wasn't like the best street in Mayfair for sure and a lot of my restaurant I remember mean, my auntie Dimitri speaking to me because he was on his he was like, it's he, crushed his way with our Arbutus and restaurants like that. And he said to me, Jason, are you mad? <laughs> he said, what have you done? And I said, but I have to stay in Mayfair. I can't afford anything else in Mayfair. I got this for like, I think we paid like 108 grand for the lease on it. Mm. Um, which was, you know, because no one wanted it because it was a dump. It was rat infested. <laughs> I mean, gosh, I don't want to like speak, it was just a mess, you know? So, yeah. so we, we cleaned it all out, we scrubbed it up, we got a fantastic designer I mean, room, we took a big risk, we put a big budget against it, and we did something spectacular, and, and thank God it paid off. And, mm. and, but it's that whole thing, right? If, you, if you're gonna do it, for me, do it right. Even like our new pizza restaurant down in Heijinato, we've probably mm. over invested in it, You know, we mm. probably won't see our return on our money for, for a long, 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 long time. But like we said, look, if we're gonna do a, a, a pizza joint, don't we want to be like one of the best in London? Do you know mm. I mean? Do we really want to just open a pizza joint for profit? Mm. Why bother? Do you mean? Mm. Right? Why bother? There's no point. Do you know what I mean? We want to do it because we want to be. I want people to leave H and and go. God, the pizza was great. The place is cool. It's mm. nice. Mm. It's amazing. You know, and it's, you know, you can get a piece for ten quid. Do you know mm. mean?
1: And internationally, had you always wanted to expand quite quickly internationally, or was it something that happened quite organically?
0: No, no, it didn't. I mean. Burners Tavern, which started it, started the international expansion in a way, I suppose, was because when we, we only had Pollen Street, little social, social eating house, we were just opening social eating house and they opened very quickly side by side. And then I got an email from Ian Schrager's office uh, asking to speak to Ian Schrager, who's like a big deal, right? You mm-hmm. um, know, you know, one of life's great visionaries, uh, you know, owner of Studio 54, oh, yeah. and it still lives in legend today of kids growing up today, right? Studio fifty-four, do you know? Uh, and I've got the email on my desk, you know, and I'm sat in my, I had this poxy little desk in my kitchen downstairs at Pollen Street and I'm reading this email. I read it twice to make sure it was real. And it said, you know, we're opening a new hotel in London, the London edition, uh, and we want you to be the restaurateur, owner of the restaurant. Uh, but it was huge, you know, it's a huge undertaking. And I thought, I'd, I don't do all day dining. I'm not sure if I can do it. I don't want to make a mess of it. I'll make a mess of it, then I could ruin everything else. So I said no. Uh, two weeks later, another email come out, asked again, said no. Uh, then Josh, uh, gosh, he was a CEO. I can't remember his name now. Come to me in a minute. And uh, he, so the CEO of Edition emailed me. Uh, so and, and this is, I promise you, this is exactly how it happened. So I said to my wife, "Do you know what? Let's. They want us to go to New York and look at the plans and look at it. Well, let's just get, get a free holiday out of it." So I said, like, we'll take." Oh, yeah, I know. It's like you can take the boy out to the <laughs> So I said, "We'll take the free business flight tickets to New York." They put us up <laughs> at the Nomad. We went to the Schrager officers, um, and he laid all the plans out of who's been. Has people been to Burns Tavern? And you see that amazing room, right? So I saw this amazing design room, and I was like, "That was it. I was done. Yeah. Do you know? I thought yeah. we've got to do that." Mm. Uh, and I said to the Schrager team, "Who?" If we don't do it, who's gonna do it? And they said Tom Akins. And I was like, right, we got to do it. <laughs> so we so we so we very quickly signed the deal, and then Berners Tavern was born. And then all of the restaurants were famous, but like London famous, I suppose, in a way. Mm. And it's still to a niche crowd, you know. Burner's Tavern made us in the restaurant world what we call Coca-Cola famous, you know? So we were like, people were sending emails from china from every part of the globe korea you name it There, we want to do a restaurant want to do a restaurant so then it was like okay well right what's happening here we need to make sure that if whatever we do we do right you know um and that was sort of the start of it really and we it was never meant to be that way but we just got offers to go all over you know
1: and now you're in hong kong and sydney and dubai and you've opened somewhere recently in the philippines yeah um and they're all they've all got their own uniqueness though they've all got their own they've yes they've got the, the center core it's you it's jason but mm-hmm. it's there's something different for each one and you partner and collaborate with a lot of your head chefs and they stay with you they work with you and you support them can you talk a little bit about that did you learn that from working with some of the other people
0: that you you no i think for, for me that was common the thing is when you come from nothing right you 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 value I, I feel like the luckiest man alive. I really do, and, and I say that because I've got two amazing children. Who I, I, I like. I, I I know everyone adores their children, so like you know, they're like the best thing in, in the world to me. I get to give them a life I never had. Do you know I mean? Uh, I I've got a beautiful wife. I've got a great home. My kids go to a great school. I go on holiday wherever I want, within reason. Of course, not wherever I want, but you know, mm. within our budget. and it's like i get to go to but the most important thing for me personally uh, in my career is i get to go to work every day and do a job that i absolutely mm. adore mm. You know, and i and i adore it you know what i mean mm. like i like i can't i I can't stress enough how much I love my work. Do you know I, mean? I just—it gives me so much pleasure mm. to run mm. restaurants, what people like to go to, and I can go in, like you know, we're, we're we're just changing the menu to a darker winter menu at Pollen Street at the moment, and we're doing all the woodcock dishes and all that, and, and and you see it on a plate, and you just—and even I've been cooking for three years. You look at it, you think, my God, it's just beautiful. Look at it. I yeah. get I get to do it's that, and people will pay it. for it. Yes. Do you know I mean? It's like wow, and I get to make money out of it. Do you know I mean? Yeah to pay for my life. And I just think, wow, I'm just like, how lucky am I? Mm. I would not swap my job for all the tea in China. I just wouldn't, you know, yeah. never in a million years. I would never want to be anything but, but a chef, you know, mm. and, and sorry, I went off a tangent okay. there. What, what, did you, uh, what, d- what, what was your worry. question?
1: <laughs> don't worry. Outside of the restaurants,
0: so you also do some television?
1: Do not a watch? lot,
0: though, You know, not a lot. I don't I, I, I did a little bit. The thing is, when you get good at something, you get pulled in a lot of directions. You know whether that's uh, brand ambassador roles, whether that's like photo shoots, whether it's like TV, especially in the Western world, like Britain and America, where you know media is very strong, very mm-hmm. good. You know, and, and you know it's. But you've always got to ask yourself the question: this. When I did my own show called My Kitchen Rules, so I did a little bit of Great British Menu. I was very lucky I won it. Uh, I never went back on to compete it again because I was scared of losing the title. So I just <laughs> jacked it in f- and I just went away with, 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 with the title. And then uh, I did a bit of Saturday Kitchen, which I'm doing this Saturday. I do it twice a year, it's no big deal. you know. Um, it takes three hours of my time. But then I got a contract with Sky to do My Kitchen Rules, which is still running today, but I... Uh... And after season one, I was like, you know, it took me 16 weeks nonstop traveling around the country sat in people's homes who were trying to, I don't know what they were trying to become, but they said they were home cooks. I dare to challenge that, Uh, uh, especially the guys in Sheffield who I sat in there. I was in their front room till four o'clock in the morning waiting for their dessert to come out. Wow. And it wasn't (laughs) worth waiting for.
1: Was Uh, it Sarah Lee? uh, Yeah. Still
0: defrosting. Still defrosting, yeah. And so I, and so I, um, and I just thought, you know, I remember having a conversation. My, my wife's a great leveler, you know, and I remember sat and chatting to here And I said, well, and this is exactly how said, you know, what do you want to be famous? Do you, do you want to be famous? Because if you want to be famous, let's sell the restaurants and then we'll we'll get, like, an amazing talent manager and, you know, we'll, we'll get you out there. If that's what you want to do, then we'll do it. But what do you want? And do you know what? I don't want to be stopped in the street for my autograph by someone saying, oh, wow, I saw you on the TV last night. Mm. Uh, it doesn't get me excited. I do want people stopping me in the street and saying, "Last week I ate at your restaurant and yeah. it was freaking fantastic. Thank you very much." Yeah. That's what I want to be famous for. Mm. And my restaurants mean everything to me. And mm. being away from them for sixteen weeks is just too long to mm. be the best in. Th- if you want to, if you generally do want to be the best in London, you can't take sixteen weeks out of your restaurants. You yeah. can't. You just cannot, mm-hmm. because it's like family, right? No one's going to look after your family better than you right? You can't get a substitute dad and say, hey, for 16 weeks, look after my kids, right? Yeah. It doesn't work like that. So yeah. it's like that whole thing of, you know, yeah. I just love my restaurants too much to be TV, you know? But you've done books and
1: two books. And I think there's another one on its way. Is that right? i
0: not doing research. I've done four books, Simon. Sorry. it's on terrible.
1: Four books. There only two that I like. I have to give them, <laughs> a- <laughs> I have to give them away because no one buys them. So um, do you enjoy the process
0: of making the books and... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like, I well, that I know what it's like giving birth to a baby, but it's like, it takes about nine months to write one um, uh, for a cookbook. You've got to like, you go through the process, you're very excited the photo shoot. We've literally just finished the photo shoot for the Pollen Street Social, the cookbook, which comes out next October. And, and it's been an amazing journey doing the photography around the country. Well, not for me, for the photographer, doing the stuff around the country on the landscapes. It's been showing me all, we've been choosing all the photos, doing it all uh, down in the private room at Pollen Street, all the beautiful food photos. It's the first time i've done a fine dining book so i'm very excited about it and but then the process starts now of getting the recipes together mm. and that's painful because like you've got to recheck them to make sure people can do them at home uh and that they're not you know because people don't have my equipment right so they don't have like you know the the four thousand dollar mixer what would like could mix your mother-in-law up in no problem <laughs> time at all you know and, and it's like they don't have that equipment you know but they uh so you've got to employ somebody to test them at home they send you a million questions and then Eventually, when you get to the end of it, this beautiful book arrives and you go, yeah. it was all worth it, you know. Mm.
1: And this one is your, which number in the... In the number three. In number three.
0: Social Suppers. That was the first book I did after leaving Gordon. Yeah. Uh, and so, so that's the first book I ever did with my own company. So with well, mine and my wife's company. And that was, so that's special to me in that way. Do you remember?
1: Yeah, see so that's why I start counting. That's why there's only two, you yes. see. Yes. That one, the dessert one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The other ones, it just don't matter. Um, so... Uh, Moving on to a broader what you do outside of your career, because you are involved with charities and yep. you are also very much sort of, you know, you've got, you know, you got an award for being one of the best dressed men in London. You've got an award from I GQ. Pay for that, <laughs> <laughs> you can pay for those. And uh, Best Restaurateur, I think, from the GQ Food and Drink Awards. Yep. So there's a whole load of things which happen around your restaurants. Which of those kind of do you engage
0: with the most? I think you can get wrapped up in, in awards. Right? I think it's important to, you know, it's great to be recognized for, for, for anything, right? Uh, everyone likes a pat on the back from being mm-hmm. young at school all the way up to, to adult life. But I think if you set up restaurants to chase awards, I think you can get in big trouble. I think, I think it's really important to focus on your, your, your customers, what, mm-hmm. what makes them happy. Because then if they're happy, like, you know, it's going to be announced in the Standard tomorrow. I think that Pollen Street has uh, become number one uh, by readers in Square Meal. Uh, so it's number one restaurant in London. The only second restaurant in the History of Square meal to get it to get it twice. So we got it when it opened, and we got it again this year. Square was the only other restaurant to get it, um, and it came number one in the Hot 100, and then number one in the country. So no restaurant's ever done free before in the same year. So and that's the customers, mm. and that I, like I that's when I did, when we got the presentation last week um by square meal i said to all my guys afterwards we you know we had a little pet talk and i said that's because Mm. you guys are so good at making the customers happy that Mm. they go away and vote you know and that's it it's simple it's not someone you come on and said like we think you're amazing so here you are it's it's the public right and so for me that (laughs) awards like that mean a lot because it's the public you know
1: but you've also just got an amazing accolade in new york you're the the first british chef to have a michelin star in new york is that right not the first we're the only one we're the
0: only current British chef what holds a Michelin star on the other side of the Atlantic yeah, yeah impressive. there's British chefs who live there what well, have got yes. them but we're the only one who works operates and lives in London what has a Michelin star in New York so it was a great it was a very uh, proud moment yeah, yeah we were very happy because you know it's tough I mean and it, it it's a sign of um you know they come in anonymous they they pay for their meals you don't know who they are they're 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 very highly trained um but you diners. always get them a cab at the end of the meal always get them a cab <laughs> always give them a 50 quid tip <laughs> yeah. um i asked you earlier your favorite books and you mentioned two two quite different books Mm-mm. i don't read a lot because it's time right so i try and read a little bit i read a lot of magazines and stuff mostly because it's like quite easy on a plane and stuff um, but I think the two books what I go back to are... Um, there's a book, if anyone's read it, called uh, Setting the Table by Danny Mayer. Of course, it's, a, it's about my industry, but it's a fantastic book and it's got a lot of hospitality, um, little tips, I suppose, in a way. And the, there's one I use for our receptions called Walking the Dog, right? There's nothing worse than going to a restaurant where the reservationist or the receptionist rather says, follow me to the table, right? And she's like six feet ahead of you. So we call it walking the dog, right? Well, he calls it walking the dog, right? So it's literally like you're dragging the customers to the table, right? Because yeah. the faster she walks, you think you've got to go with her, right? Uh, and But we what, what we would learn from that book was, you've got probably about a minute walk before you get to the table, 30 seconds, maybe something like that. But in those 30 seconds, could you imagine how much information you can extract from that customer? Are hey, you having a nice day? Actually, i have had a really shit day. My wife's left me. My uh, da, da, da 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 whatever, right? Uh, and then you can go, sir. What's your favourite drink? Uh, oh, I love Negronis. Get to the bar, get him a Negroni on the house. He's had a really shit day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not going to make it. It's not going to change his will, but it's going to make him feel a little bit better that we care about him. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He might turn around and say, actually. It's been a nightmare getting a reservation here for my wife's uh, surprise anniversary. She doesn't know, you know, she doesn't know uh, I booked here and she's just turned up on it. and then we make a big deal out of that. We get two glasses of champagne. So it's all yeah. that information we would never have got yeah. if we don't have that little bit of conversation with the guests. Yeah. And it's all that all the time trying to get information to make people feel better, you know?
1: Yeah. To enrich the experience.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And your second
1: book, which, I was, which was interesting.
0: The autobiography of Margaret Thatcher, yeah, um, especially coming from a mining community <laughs> yeah, exactly. in the north of England, uh, I'm not very uh, popular with my uncles on that one. But I, 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 you know, because I come from not a very well-educated background, I try my best to understand the history of, of modern Britain, I suppose, and the impact mm-hmm. it has, and, and 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 understanding, you know, stuff, right, mm. and and. I just find her a fascinating lady. I think, I think you know, she's she was so tough in the decisions mm. she had to make, when you know, when we couldn't, you know, when the unions were crippling the country, and she stood up to them and got and got the country back on her feet, where a lot of people wouldn't have had the the balls to do that, quite frankly. Do you? Know? Mm. And she did, you know, when the rubbish was mounting up, and if you look at the photos, so I like Google it and go back on it and stuff, you can see all the photos of all literally mounds of rubbish on the streets of London, and she never gave in. Do you know? And she mm. was like, no, you know, we're, we're going to break the unions for whatever reason, but I just find, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong, by the way, I'm just saying that I just find people are, who are strong, I find them fascinating, you know?
1: Yeah, I can just imagine your uncle actually back in Skegness being quite...
0: Yeah, well, they're, well they're, <laughs> they're, they're like the Sheffield side, but they're like, yeah, they wouldn't, yeah, yeah they're not very pleased when I talk about manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um Okay, I'm, I'm gonna open up to the floor um, because I'm sure you've got a few questions for, for Jason um, and then afterwards Jason's going to hang around for a bit to sign books. So, um, But before that, does anyone have a question for Jason? Just there. Hi Jason. Uh, on
0: the street, of course, where's been your favourite place to eat in the
1: country of late? Where's been the favourite place for Jason to eat?
0: Yeah, we we recently uh, we were so sick of flying that because of work and stuff that we half term holidays in October we went to um, Cornwall for the, with the children um, uh, and we went to Restaurant Nathan Outlaw uh, and it was just it was breathtaking. The food was so incredibly. It's different, I know, because it's like the, the fish are there, right? They're looking at you while you're eating their cousin. You know, and they're literally like you're you're, you're literally <laughs> overlooking the harbour right there, and it was just so. It was just great it was so simple <coughs> but so clean and tasty and because it, i always say this to all my cooks food if it's not mm. yummy don't put it on the menu right just because it looks pretty doesn't mean it's yummy eat the food taste it you know when well, we do we do it ourselves everybody you taste it and it's got to be yummy mm. because people always remember yumminess right do you, know <laughs> you mean you do right Absolutely. the manner from a young age right the way to when you get older you always remember yumminess right and, and then you want food to be yummy, and Nathan Outlaws was, my God, it was yummy, so (laughs) we can't wait to go back.
1: Good question. Just at the back there. Uh, Two quick questions. One is, um, for your uh, restaurant empire, what's the most uh, critical business challenges you face? And two, um, what is the most interesting ingredient you've come across in the last few months? I'm just gonna repeat that for everyone. So the the most challenging part of running your empire and your favorite ingredient.
0: I think the challenging part is is, is pretty straightforward. I mean, it, it's just constantly, because you get a high turnover of staff a, a, a lot, you know, in the lower ranks especially. So it's constantly getting people to buy into your ethos of customer service, hospitality, why we do it, you know. Uh, trying to, you know, because some people don't want to be in it forever, and I'm okay with that, you know, if you're just coming to do it for a couple of years while you're at uni, uh, or you want to make some money. But while you're here, you know, Put some effort in, right? We need you to. We need you to buy into our dream because this is our dream. This is us. This. We've got everything invested into this, you know. And uh, you know, we 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 had to send home a young chap last night at Holland Street because he just didn't give a monkey You know, he was a new member of staff on the commie team who who carry the trays and put them down on the stations, and he just didn't have the right attitude. You know, and we we have to. Everybody from the kitchen porters, right, all the way through. The, to the very top of the tree, have to we have to get people to buy that. And so that's difficult, because not everyone's going to have the same passion as you, right? I mean, it's very difficult. You can't give equity away to everybody, right? So trying to give, I mean, we give equ- equ- equity away to the to the senior people, but trying to give equity away to like juniors to, to, to juniors when they're only in the business for twelve months is is, 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 is impossible. So we do incentivize them with. Uh, bonuses and, you know, but, you know, when life becomes about money, is it really about money? Do you know what I mean? I mean, and I don't want to sound like the Hovis advert, but I lived on nothing, do you know what I mean? And it was never about money for me. I just wanted to be great. I wanted to learn everything I could. And I know people then, but then people said, yeah, but Jason, you're different. Why am I different? I'm not different. I'm born with two legs and two arms and a head, like everybody else. I'm not different, but it's when it becomes about money for me, I turn off. Do you mean? I, I've done some restaurant deals where it's a bad deal for me, you know. But I I believe in the restaurant so much, and I love the site, like New York. You know, New York. We don't make a lot of money out of New York, but operating a restaurant in New York City, in Manhattan, I mean, I my hair stands on end every time I go there. And me and my wife go over the Brooklyn Bridge, in the car, and we and we and, and we're like, what right does a a guy who was raised in a caravan in Skegness have the right to own a restaurant in in Manhattan Island, competing with some of the greatest chefs on the planet. But you know, dream if you dream, things can happen, right? Mm. Do you so I get you. Yes, but when you know, we're not Google. Do you mean? You know, we're not. We don't have billions of dollars at our disposal. We're we're a, we're a small restaurant group. So trying to incentivize everybody. Yes, we do it on bonuses. You know you sell you know if, if you can sell the most wine tonight you get a, you get to take this amazing bottle of wine home to try with your friends so we do all sorts of stuff but it's very difficult okay. but also so, a
1: lot of people stay with you for quite a long time I mean, michael west and a number of the chefs yeah. that, that have been with you for a long time and, and at different levels the sommeliers who have been with you for years and years mm-hmm. um i mean i'm i mean obviously that you must have a lot of turnover because you have so many different restaurants and so many different places but you do see familiar faces in a lot of your restaurants. Yeah, yeah, but but good. then like, you
0: know, like our head sommelier has been with us for since the Mays days, Laura Patra. She came to me in era, she she was married, she wanted to have children and and she worked so hard for us. And I said to Laura, look, you know, what do you want to do? And she cuz I want to own a wine shop. And and, and I said, All "Right, okay, well let's start setting about getting you a wine shop, you know, mm-hmm. because I feel so loyal to you cuz you've worked so hard for me and I wouldn't be where I am today without you. That you know, with your part where you've put into Pollen Street, that we, you know, we have to help mm, you. Don't? Mm. But the thing is, with yeah. wine shops, we don't have in Britain. We don't have the same philosophy about wine like they do in France. So it's very difficult. On a cold, rainy Tuesday in February, you'll sell one bottle of Chardonnay, right? So you can't have a central London location. So we we invented social wine and tapas purely for law. You know, we yeah. put a small little tapas bar in there. She's got a beautiful wine shop. Mm. Me and her, she's a shareholder alongside myself and era. And that's her baby, you know. What she does with that is down to her. And, and this year
1: it was at Freeze. You had you were at the Freeze Art Fair. We you? did
0: Freeze Art Fair, yeah. With Law, so Law ran yep. that with us, and, and it was very successful. So we got to mix our two passions of restaurants and art. Mm. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. But that's to ask right. you other question about ingredients, probably, um, probably Caesar mushrooms. Not the, It's not that unusual. But I first worked with them in um, in Spain. Uh, the beautiful orange cap mushrooms. I don't know if I've are eaten them. The delicious raw, actually. Uh, And then they popped up this year, and and for some reason, they're all over Britain this year. And and so we got to it, and I thought it was very special to be able to put them on the menu. Great. There was another question just here. Listening to you, I feel like
1: such an (laughs) 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 under-achiever. So many people are
0: trying to open their own restaurants these days. Do you think, for you, it's just burning ambition? Did you have this vision that this is what you wanted, and you've helped them to get it? Or is it a bit of serendipity along the
1: way um, i think ambition serendipity so i'm just have a piece of it for everyone else yeah, which think, one is it
0: i, I think um listen ev- everyone needs their cards to pl- be played played right so so you know you can't win a card game unless you get the right right cards in your hand but but i think listen when i worked for marco and i never forget it marco and then uh, there was a lot of chefs better than me in those kitchens but they didn't have the determination what i had and the patience right because if you it's like, you know, I'm training, I'm at the gym at the moment trying to get fit and train and stuff. It's irrelevant to the question, but it's relevant in a way because, you know, it's taken me a lot longer at my age to get in the shape I want to get in, but I'm so determined to do it that I'm not going to stop till I get what I want to get, because I started it and I'm not going to give up doing you know mean? Mm. And it's the same thing with the restaurant. There was no way I was going to put my whole life into this and the obsession I had for food and not come out the other side with my own restaurant. And the dream was only ever one restaurant. Do I mean, so, you so I think it's that determination for sure and you know that that willpower to succeed where other people will just lie down and say, Oh, it wasn't for me, or it was too hard, or the hours are too long, or And also, you know, I've got a, a great family to support me because, you know, a lot of a lot of ladies would have walked away from a nutcase like me, do you mean who who just <laughs> literally you know, we have, a, we have a, a, a thing in our family where I take the kids to school in the morning. Uh, my wife very kindly lets me stay out until midnight uh, working in the restaurants. And then, but my job is in the morning, I get up, I feed them breakfast, I get them ready for school, I take them to school. And then at weekends, we're always with the children. So we, it's getting that life balance, I suppose, to be able to put that passion into the work. Are mm. uh, the back there? Yeah. How, how do you continue learning now that you're at the, you know, the top of your, your game? Is it through experimentation or do you learn from young chefs? Or do you yeah. How do you keep on learning? Uh, that's a great question. I I, I, don't, well, to, to put the record straight, I don't think I'm at the top of my game. I think I've got so much to give still. I've am I'm. i You know, I've got a couple of more projects we're looking to do in the next two years, which I think if we get them right could take us to a whole different level. Um, and I, I, I think it's... I don't think I'll ever be done. You know, I don't think that's that's the case. I don't think you can ever stop learning. You know, we um, I think you know we, we've been uh, I've been learning a lot about Filipino cuisine because obviously because of my wife and uh, we want to open a really cool Filipino restaurant in London at some point uh, and um, it's on the crest of a wave Filipino food in in the states and it's that whole thing of like learning's the key, right? How can you you know I'm sure you know. People who work in banks who make billions and stuff, their, 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 their brains are so intense, they must still want to learn, right? They can't just become a, the best Warren Buffet and he just suddenly says, Okay, I'm Warren Buffet, I'll stop now, right? <laughs> he must continue to crave to learn, to mm. give back, to do whatever whatever Warren Buffet does. But it's the same for us in the fact that my my, my learning will never stop. I have to, I read books. I go to other people's restaurants, I eat out, I, I learn a lot from eating out, you know, I uh, wherever we go, we go, it's always restaurants, it's crazy, right, we, we're going to, I'm cooking at the restaurant for New York at Christmas, and then we, Christmas Day, we're eating at Le Bernardin for our Christmas Day lunch, uh, which we're super excited about, and then we're only in New York for four days, but it's just jam-packed with restaurants, with the mm. children. Uh, we're taking the children to Pasquale Jones, which I think is the best pizza in North America, and it's 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 just always about restaurants. It's crazy, but mm. that's what we do, you know. And we learn so much while we're while we're on that journey, you know.
1: Thanks for the question. But that's not a
0: bad life though, is it? <laughs> Sounds very eating, good. eating in restaurants to learn. It's
1: more like to go to the gym. Yeah, right. Yeah,
0: to yeah, keep the souffles out.
1: <laughs> I think we have time for maybe just one or two more, just in the middle there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been an integral part of your journey. You mentioned a couple of times you worked for four or five freestyle restaurants. But recently, chefs have given away stars because they couldn't cope with the pressure of having stars. But in Germany, where I'm from, for instance, a chef who killed himself apparently has been associated with the pressure of
0: Michelin stars. Can you talk about that? The pressure of the Michelin star, yeah. the double edged sword, really. It is a double-edged sword because, but the thing is, you have to remember, Michelin don't put us under pressure. It's we put ourselves under pressure, and that pressure is, you know, you win a star. Say, Um, like perfect example, New York. We 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 were doing, it was probably about a nine million US dollar business, uh, two weeks ago. If the trend continues of where it is, it will probably if we started the year from the day we won Michelin star, our business has gone up by twenty five percent. So if it continues to plateau out that, we'll close the following year on a 12 and a half, 13 million pound business, uh, dollars, US dollars. So it has a colossal effect that this little red plaque, what goes outside your restaurant, that people go, oh, I'll go there and I'll spend more money than I would spend if it didn't have a Michelin star. It's quite bizarre. Mm -hmm. I don't, And the same happened at Pollen Street, same at Social Eating House. So that's the plus side of it. Um, that people come and they trust your food, they trust the wine list, they trust the smells a little bit more because you have a, a shiny macaroon on your on your door. <laughs> but it's then losing it will have the opposite effect, where your business would decline because people mm-hmm. think, well, it can't be good anymore. So, so we're not going to go. We're going to cancel our booking because it's lost its Michelin star. The chef must have lost interest. But I think, you know, if you if you put yourself under that pressure, I think I don't know. It, I get it, you know. Start, chefs are left, right, and centre, giving their stars back. I never will because it's been my whole life. You know, it's, it's it's kept me on. It's kept my moral compass straight. It's it takes a lot of work, a lot of. It's, I suppose it's like training for the Olympics, right? If you've always trained for the Olympics, and that's always been your goal to get in the Olympic team, you get into the Olympic team, then you don't just turn around and go ah, the pressure's too much, I can't run 100 metres under 10 seconds, I'm stopping all this. <laughs> You've trained your whole life to get into the Olympic teams, you're going to go to the Olympics, right? So it, it's that whole thing, I don't know, it's just like, for me, I live and breathe it, is what I, it is who I am, I suppose. The Michelin a stars are here to stay, for you. I, th- I don't think they're going to go anywhere because I think, I mean, there's just too many lists and too many guidebooks around the world and there's yeah. there's only a couple in the UK you can trust, not trust, but are more consistent, shall we say, and don't follow trends and fads and just yeah. mark good food.
1: Yeah. Know? I think we actually are kind of almost out of time. So just one more question at the back and then...
0: No, no. I think it's here to stay. I think, I think the food re- revolution, what's gone on in Britain over the last twenty years, is phenomenal, and, mm. and it's talked about all over the world. London being one of the the leading lights of, uh, of the food culture uh, uh, and, and street food is very much part of that. You know, and I think, in London, you can. It's one of the only few cities in the world, like New York, where you can get great. Ethiopian food, great Indian food, Pakistani food, British food, American food, burgers, pizzas, you name it, it's, it's there. If you just hunt it out, it, it's everywhere. And I think mm. that's down to the hard work of the industry over the last 20 years. It's incredible, because chefs go and train at free Michelin-style restaurants, get amazing standards, and then go and make burgers. But they're applying the same ethos mm that burger as they would if they were trying to create a Michelin style meal and I think that's just wonderful you know because they're obsessed about ingredients they're obsessed about provenance they're obsessed about making uh, an incredible whatever it may be for the diner you know and I think that's where we've come where probably 15 years ago you could eat really well at the very top and a little bit at the bottom and in the middle it was pretty shoddy but now it's like if you if, if you're sensible in London you can't have a bad meal you know
1: it kind of goes hand in hand with that the kind of cultural revolution in many ways that's happening in London. I mean, anywhere you go around the world, people talk about what's happening here, and it is it is quite exciting. I mean, I think part of it is you know, problematic because it's an explosion of prices and rents and all that sort of thing, and pricing people out. But there is equally still so much creativity, and that you know is definitely seen within the, across the food scene. Um, but you know, I think more broadly across the kind of London has got become this sort of epicenter for so much creativity and experimentation and it's exciting, I think.
0: I think, listen, we live in a city what is built on creativity. We are the market leaders globally. And, you know, you think about music, fashion, food, you know, feel, you know, you name it. I mean, like, we're, you know, mm. if you go to Hollywood, you know, most of the young actors coming through for this tiny little island, you know, we're like a miniscule thing on the map mm. and the creativity, what comes out of it and the capital, for me, I'm just so proud to be British and to be part of the London family. I just can't. I just, I'm just crazy about London. I just think it's the best city in the world, and I we, we often talk about it when we land back wherever we've been. Uh, we just feel so lucky to be in London, you know.
1: On that note, on how brilliant London is, I'm going to close the talk. So thank you very much, Jason. Thank you. You're going to stay with us, sign some of your books. Please just come down and uh, meet Jason. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Made of applause thank, you. You. thank you for out?